I know when I'm designing, I'm thinking in my mind, like, you know, I want this thing to, to look X, Y, and Z style or, you know, and it's interesting because we're translating these thoughts and words in our, our minds and uh, our output is turning into inputs on the keyboard and mouse <laughs> and the clicks on the canvas. Could we actually sort of eliminate that layer, that intermediate interaction we have to click and tap a few keys? Mm-hmm. Could you just go straight from thoughts to or words to design? I think anytime you can even imagine eliminating like a layer of input that's kind of necessary. Hello everyone and welcome again to Design is for Everyone, a show where we talk about the role of design in the modern world with guests from all around the globe and where today we'll be learning all about Jordan Singer and his incredible design tools. Although being a product designer, Jordan is known for his intersections between design, code and most recently artificial intelligence. He's a maker that started from a very young age to learn as much as he could about how the web is built. And now, is helping to build the next chapter of what design is. Okay, it's working, it's recording. So, yeah, well, let's start. So, hi everyone and welcome again to the Design is for Everyone podcast. Today I'm here with Jordan Singer. Hi, Jordan. Hi, what's going on? I'm I'm guessing everything is going to be way better now that we're here talking (laughs) with each other. I'm just going to start with the question that I've been starting with everyone, which is a little bit like, how did you end up in the world of design? What drove you into design? What's your backstory here? I got started when I was a bit younger, I would say probably early elementary school. It was probably, I don't know, six or seven at the time. And I remember having a computer in my room that wasn't connected to the internet. And that computer, it wasn't a Mac. I I wish it had been a Mac. (laughs) It was one of those beige, you know, compact desktop PC kind of things. And I just remember being really curious about how this computer worked. And I was hearing about the internet through school. We had just begun exploring the internet. And I wanted to be able to just kind of mess around with the computer and Mm -hmm. see, you know, what it was all about. As I started to do that, one of the places I landed on in the you know early internet in my exploration was on apple.com. Which is a and classic. Think, yeah. And you know, what an amazing site to land on back then. I think at the time it was like they had that hero image introducing the original iPod and and mm-hmm. they had their older uh, iBooks and iMacs and stuff. And all I remember thinking was being really captivated by how different that site looked compared to almost every other site I was on at the time, which was very, you know, Times New Roman, black and yeah. white, blue links. Classic and classic old it, internet. It, and it, it just stood out so much to me compared to everything else I was seeing. And I instantly just thought like, how how do I make that kind of thing? Because I know it like takes people to, to make that stuff. And I want to know how they made it, what they were thinking about, why they made the decisions they made. And I was just so captivated by the site that that was my really like original draw into digital design. I had a lot of 
experiences over the years being exposed to different, whether it was Apple devices that just had beautiful industrial design, mm-hmm. um, you know, more, more websites like the apple.com that were really well designed. And my design taste, I knew I had the taste and the sense of style that was kind of always there. Yeah, got it. But I was never really capable of like, one, I didn't really know what a design tool was. And two, I could have never really even began to put together those kinds of designs. And so (laughs) that was my original inspiration for getting into design was I want to be able to make something that looks like this. And so that's really for me where it all started. And over time, I was much younger back then, but yeah, um, it evolved into where it is today, where I've just always been a really curious person in general. And mm-hmm. that curiosity has led to exploring that thing I was captivated by further and figuring out how to make a website, how to design something, how to, yeah. you know, et cetera. And so for me, that's, that's really where it all began. So you basically just went and, and, and kickstarted everything by looking at an apple.com, which is a classic, I would say. Although in my defense, I think I only figured out what a Mac was, an Apple device was, actual laptop, when I was like 16, 17. Because in Portugal, mm. iPods were a thing, but Macs for younger people were not like what they are nowadays. And, and it feels very interesting to listen to people on the States talk about that. And the difference, because for me, spent most of my life with those beige desktops and then those clunky laptops that were black, plasticky things. And it makes perfect sense too. That's such an, an inspiration at the end of the day, which is amazing. But what most people know about you is that usually you don't just linger in the world of design you kind of wobble a little bit between design and code and actually you do a lot of code nowadays and a lot of really cool things when it comes to creating things coding things how how did this end the end up mixing up in your world and and how do you feel like you use them nowadays yeah it's a great question because i you know as recently as uh, a few months ago, I, I spent four years at Square as a product designer. Mm-hmm. But it turns out I would really consider myself and, and where I got my start was really engineering driven and, mm-hmm. and coding kind of first. And and back to that apple.com example, one of the first things I remember discovering was that you could on that site, right click and inspect element or view the source. <laughs> And see the code that actually made the website. Yeah. And and I was like, oh my gosh, you can just steal this and like use it, you know, for yourself. Like I don't have to do anything. And that's what led me to getting into code, which was because you know all back then at least all of the static website code was all there right in front of you. You could copy it, put it into your own index.html file. And so I did that with the apple.com source code. And when I opened up that index.html file, what I discovered was that it again, looked very bare bones, times new Roman (laughs) blue links. And so I was like, what, Uh, like, I just copied the exact code. What's, what's missing here. And that's what led me to discover then CSS because 
what, you know, of course, in that source code that I copied, the paths to the style sheets were relative. Therefore, it you could trace it back yeah. to the original CSS. So then I, I started looking at, okay, what is the CSS thing? And then I discovered that's the, that's where you get the styling from. That's where the, the nice stuff comes from. And so I kind of started to explore that whole thing. And websites in general, HTML, CSS, that was my thing for a long time mm. when I was younger. That's what I was focused on building these little mini websites, web apps that were really like desktop oriented. And so the thing as it relates to like design and code that I ran into was I got so comfortable like at a certain point with code and like yeah. HTML, CSS, I was able to generally get something functional and look half decent, but I knew still the things I was building didn't look quite like what I wanted them to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my taste at the time, my sense of style didn't match my design skill set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so through that is really where I got into design after building lots and lots of static websites mm -hmm. and web apps over time. I finally just took it upon myself without wanting to have to go find some other designer that really doesn't want to help you with your yeah. random thing. I just decided to try to do it myself. And so... Early on for learning design for me, it was very self-taught yeah, and it was very imitating, you know, sometimes just straight up copying what I thought looked good. Again, back to that Apple example. Yeah. Um, which, which by the way, is a great way of learning for sure. If anyone is out there and you're beginning in the design and beginning into code, copy a lot of things because there's a lot of learnings you get into seeing how people build things. Exactly. Learning by doing is the way I like to learn. And I think the reason I find it so useful is as you dive in, you know, I dove straight into trying to understand the HTML code or the CSS. I dove straight into like trying to design something to make it look good. And the things I knew that looked good, I wanted to copy. And I think you start to, as you're kind of mimicking or copying other things that you find beautiful, mm -hmm. you start to kind of pick up on the, the, the high level, like they tend to use a lot of white space or, you know, the color choices that they make and the yeah. padding, you know, et cetera. And that starts to really become ingrained inside of your brain <laughs> as things that you use when you go to design something on your own. Yeah. And so ultimately, yeah, like the design and code thing, I think really came about just by again, trying to learn by doing, being first interested in building websites, then wanting to make those websites, you know, look good. And mm. all of that was kind of self-taught. And it was only through lots and lots of repetition and iteration over the years that I was able to really, you know, get to a point where I felt really comfortable with both design and code. And, and nowadays, at least on my perspective and the great things that you've been building it does feel like you're very comfortable with design and code. Thank you. And, and honestly, there's really amazing products that you're putting out there from the entire little world of apps that you built to airport. Would you care talking a little bit about those, letting everyone know like how did you came to be and explain them a lot better than I can because honestly, 
I always forget, for example, that Airport is an app store for test flight apps. I always forget the test flight name. I prefer Airport. <laughs> so nice. could you talk a little bit about that, about the little world of apps yeah. and Airport? Yeah, totally. Those two projects in particular, Little Software and Airport, both came about during the pandemic. And the reason for that was I just found myself at home with way more time on my hands to hack around. And I was still at Square working on Cash App. And what was interesting was I've always kind of dabbled in like building iOS apps and things like that. And leading up to that point, when I started Little Software, I think in early, yeah, early like 2020 mm -hmm. last year, um, Swift UI was really maturing and becoming more of a thing. And that was really attractive to me, but I never had really learned it. Yeah. And again, back to this idea of learning by doing all I wanted to do as it pertains to little software, which makes a bunch of these little apps, which I'll explain. All I wanted to do at the time was learn how to write Swift UI code and like yeah. build an iOS app that's entirely Swift UI. And so again, taking this learning by doing approach, I started to straight into Xcode yeah. and, you know, create that sample project and just start trying to hack on stuff. And this is where the, I think this learning by doing mentality really was the inspiration for little software and all the apps mm -hmm. it makes, because I, again, I learned best by doing, and yeah. I wasn't about to try to sit down, read a Swift UI tutorial, <laughs> build something that I really didn't want to make. Maybe it taught me a few things, but I, I just wanted to like jump straight into it. Yeah. And so the original idea was actually to, before I even had the little software, the little brand or anything, the original idea was I kind of just wanted to create these really simple utility-based apps in yeah. Swift UI. That was kind of my way, my excuse of learning Swift UI was I'm not going to try to think of this crazy novel new next big app idea thing. I'm going to just try to remake something like a weather app or a calculator mm -hmm. and just make it really simple and build it entirely in Swift UI. And so that's what I started doing. And the original naming convention I had for these apps was literally just mimicking what, you know, Apple does just call yeah, it yeah, weather yeah. or calculator, et cetera. But ultimately that really wasn't going to work because it, you know, you can't really have that name on the app store, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who I worked with at Square on Cash App who did a lot of the Cash App branding. Yeah. Um, and we were kind of, I was kind of just chatting with him his name is Kyle Fletcher about what I was working on and the idea behind everything, just these really simple apps. And he was the one who came up with the, the brilliant idea <laughs> to just call them, you know, little weather, yeah. little calculator, little browser, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And so I kind of just took that and ran with it because I thought it was so perfect. And so, yeah, you know, that was my excuse and way of learning Swift UI. It was building yeah. these little apps. And so each little app, it's it's a very simple focused experience. You know, the mm -hmm. weather app just gives you the current weather and a yeah, visual yeah, yeah. of like the sun. Calculator, just a really simple calculator. Mm -hmm. Bra little browser, that's one of my favorites where there's no tab management or any. You kind of and the URL. <laughs> yeah, it's just an address bar and that's it. Uh, so really simple little notes app, 
little to do. Which, by camera. the way, not only are they very well designed and very simple in use, but it also, at least for me, broke the conversation about the mega apps, if you want to call them like that. Nowadays, everyone wants to put everything into every app. It's it's not a new problem, I would say. The first time I ever worked on app design, probably back in 2013, I had a customer that I remember wanted to put every little feature and it's like like lack of focus on features and everything is a very common issue with people trying to put things in apps. But nowadays, with so many productivity apps already using all of these services, being able to just focus on one thing, making just that simple app that works perfectly for that reason, that for me was the selling point on all the little software. That was a, a great, great escape from all that over-the-top, too many feature apps type of thing. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. Really appreciate that. I mean, <laughs> I just wanted to make things that you know I wanted for myself. And th this also goes back to the whole I build my ideas kind of tagline I have, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. ultimately, that's that's what I do is I just come up with that crazy ideas and try to build them, try to figure it out. So and it's kind of it's ironic, you mentioned the, the whole like bundling of these mega apps, mm -hmm. because what I found with little software was, there was at one point, I think, like 10 different little apps. Yeah. And each of them is like a different test flight app, and you have to maintain it. And unfortunately, I ran into a few problems with Apple where, ironically enough, they rejected several of them for the App Store because they didn't meet the minimum functionality requirements, <laughs> which yeah. is exactly like the intention. Yeah. So that was, you know, unfortunate, but they still exist kind of as test flight apps. But it became so hard to maintain 10 different test flight apps and bump their version every 90 days because they expire to keep them running and everything. So what I ended up doing was back to your point on these kind of like mega apps, I mm -hmm. ended up consolidating all the little apps into a single app called Lil OS mm -hmm. and Lil OS. When you open it up, it very much mimics kind of the home screen layout, like, yeah. like the iOS home screen. And it's just inside of Lil OS is one app that contains all of the little apps inside of it. Yeah. And so for me, that became a lot easier to maintain. And I think it's kind of ironic, the idea that there's an app that's an OS almost inside <laughs> of iOS. So that's where that, that's the direction that stuff kind of took. But overall, it was an amazing project because it did a few things It helped me learn SwiftUI. That was like mm -hmm. the biggest thing, the biggest reason I started doing that stuff. It created this awesome brand little software that I took in a lot of different directions. Yeah. And it, the amazing thing about that brand is it's so flexible mm -hmm. and it doesn't just have to apply to apps. It can apply to, you know, hardware, anything um, you choose, anything, just want anything. to play around with. Yeah. And, and this build, build it yourself kind of mentality is interesting. And, and it's very on point with the way that we now interact with technology as it, it's so easy for us to just go after it. And you actually created an API for a little software, right? Like for other people to mm -hmm. build on top of what you built. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Like there's also little APIs, which are just the APIs that power the little apps. And all I wanted to do is make like really, again, in the spirit of these really simple ideas, little APIs are just really dead simple, no authentication required API endpoints to fetch the weather or the news or stocks. So yeah, there, it was really cool because it, it created a lot of products that weren't just iOS apps. 
Yeah. So that no, was that was a that's really fun moment in time. And so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of a little software. I haven't uh, I haven't done any active development mm-hmm. on that stuff recently. I think little OS kind of exists as is, and I might yeah. you know make smaller little updates over time. But yeah, that was a really really fun experiment and certainly got me it started in this whole iOS thing mm-hmm. like building iOS apps which which is kind of the lead into airport yeah and so airport is another kind of result very much i think of the pandemic where yeah i had a ton of time extra time on my hands at home to build stuff and almost interestingly enough back to that problem i had of maintaining those those like 10 the- independent apps on test flight yeah yeah distribution is one problem like i ended up kind of just creating the the website lil.software mm-hmm. and each app is listed there with a test flight link and that's kind of how i distributed the test flight apps but distribution is a really hard problem especially for in, indie developers who don't necessarily have uh, a ton of reach to be able to get their app in the right hands to get the, the testing and feedback that they need to be able to kind of graduate from test flight to the app store. And the trend I was sort of noticing was this was around August of 20, what was it? 2019, 2020, that particular summer, there were so many test flight apps flying around Yeah, and everyone was trying to get an invite to the next thing, because <laughs> I, I think again, back to this being the result of the pandemic, people just had way more time to build stuff. Yeah. And And creativity was flowing like crazy. There were great ideas being built everywhere and people just wanted to put them out. And yeah, I remember, I remember starting seeing on Twitter way too many test flight links and way too many like wait lists with people just throwing their ideas out and testing things out, which was definitely a moment in time, very specific to creativity and, and the space of creating apps actually. Yeah. I agree. Um, and so I, I was trying to capture a lot of what I saw that was going on, which was there's so many test flight apps out there. I have a lot of FOMO from not getting access to them. <laughs> I wish I could just see them all in one place and just be able to, to casually browse everything that's new. And so my mind went to what if there was an app store just for test flight apps? And that was literally the core of the idea. And Mm -hmm. so I benefited certainly from all the little software stuff because I had done so much building iOS apps over time that the execution of the idea was actually the easy part for me because I was basically able to pull a lot of different pieces from previous apps I had built. I kind of just had to figure out a few things like how are developers going to submit their app to airport? Is there a server involved? How do we store data? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that kind of technicalities. That comes with creating an app store because that's the thing. You created an actual app store at the end of the day. Yeah, (laughs) right. And so what's interesting about this one is that it actually came together literally, I think, over the span of four days, the first like version (laughs) of it. Yeah. Where I tweeted, you know, I remember the original tweet was like, what if there was an app store for test flight apps or something like that? Yeah, And it got a ton of reception, like, oh my God, you got to make this. <laughs> so I just, I started right away. And my approach is always to, before all the, how are people going to submit apps to the, to the airport thing, all that, I always start with the front end, like being the iOS app and the, the Swift UI code. 
because that's the part, you know, no matter what, I know I'm going to need. So I immediately jumped into building that piece. Um, And again, back to mimicking designs that I like, you know, Apple already kind of solved sort of how to design an app store. And so (laughs) I very much just mimicked the way that they list apps and the app store Mm -hmm. detail page and all that kind of stuff. Airport, the, the app itself is really quite simple. It's just a list of apps and you can search by name or category. But I built that, you know, in SwiftUI. And then it turns out I have used Airtable a lot in the past mm-hmm. to uh, store data and kind of act as a database because yeah, they yeah, give yeah. you an API. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as opposed to spinning up my own server, you know, and all that stuff, which would have taken a bit more time, I kind of just used Airtable to start as the back end yeah. uh, for airport. And what's amazing about Airtable is they let you submit, they give you a form to be able to submit data to the table. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of solved the whole app submission thing. And again, like in the span of four days, it went from idea to on test flight. And uh, uh, that was, that was a really, really fun experience to build that and create a, create a community around people who wanted to test test flight apps and beyond the newest stuff. And also giving developers more distribution and reach yeah. for those people who are interested in testing. So completely. And and that's actually the point that I like about Airport is like you not only created an app store, but you created an entire new type of marketplace where communities of builders and creators and people that are just testing things out and want to put things out there, you actually gave them a distribution channel that they would never have if you hadn't had that idea, that crazy idea and just built it in four days, which by the way, for me, it's just crazy. <laughs> but even talking about the, the way that you used Airtable and the way that nowadays with APIs and, and some no-code type tools with disconnectors and this type of things, many of the apps and the solutions that we want to build are so easy to build. It's interesting to see how different people pick it up. Your story is one. I've heard a thousand more. But I love how it just becomes so easy to bring ideas to life. Yeah, I mean, in that span of uh, four days, I was just trying to find the quickest way to get something off the ground. Very much always try to optimize to just, I just like to ship stuff, get it out there, get mm-hmm. feedback and iterate. Being able to use something like Airtable, for example, where the whole package is there and it's everything I need. That was awesome. So yeah, I did that whole thing. And over time, it's grown to host at this point, I think well over a thousand apps and mm-hmm. uh, uh, thousands and thousands of testers. Mm-hmm. It's been really, really awesome to grow that community. And I have a friend, uh, Sid Sharma, working on it with me. He's kind of focused on the web experience of airport. And so, yeah, that was, again, another awesome project that all started kind of with an idea and given given kind of the the evolution of how I learned Swift UI and things yeah. like that. It fed perfectly into that that timing. So yeah, that was super fun. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. The the story of how you got from I want more knowledge to I built things with said knowledge. In such a short time span. And honestly, the pandemic was interesting in many ways because you look at a, the way that people use their time during the lockdowns and what's not. There were people that were just trying to improve their life, do a lot of sports, whatever. There were people that was just creating, and that was great to see there. There's a lot of really interesting things out there that are like children of 
the pandemic, if you want to put it like yeah. that, uh, which is actually interesting. Yeah, and talking about how these things are built and what's not, and I mentioned before that, for example, you created the little API, you now mentioned that you used something like Airtable that connects with other things. So these are solutions and, and things that we're seeing more and more into software, into code that are more f- focused on things close to or directly side by side with what open source and open code is, open software. What is the role of that? Or what is the role of, the, of those connections of software and the, that open software, if you want to put it like that, in the way that you create those things? Do you think it is essential for you? Do you think it's just something that helps you? What what does that mean to you at the end of the day when you create things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think anytime I can leverage something that, you know, does the job, gets the job done for me that I otherwise would have had to spend a lot of time doing on my own. I'm always interested in whatever that happens to be in this case, like Airtable, um, for example. I also, even from my perspective, I tried as much as possible to share when I was learning SwiftUI, a lot of the code that I was writing mm-hmm. and open sourcing some of that stuff, because I've always found it to be most helpful when I was starting, when I start on, on occasion, a new project from scratch, mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to take an existing open source repository and know that perhaps it does like 50%, let's say of what you want it to do. And you need to kind of remix it and add the yeah. additional 50% to get it to do what you want it to do. And mm-hmm. so I, I was putting out a lot of uh, code on GitHub that I was writing in, in SwiftUI to show people like recreating, you know, for example, the Mac OS Twitter app or <laughs> uh, recreating Slack in SwiftUI and just yeah. showing the power of SwiftUI and that you can literally do anything you want with it. And also in the hopes that when someone stumbles upon this code, they can mm-hmm. take it and it's got visual elements that they might want to copy or they can use it as a foundation for their next thing. I think being being really open about the things that you're not only building, but also the code that you're writing and not being embarrassed to put it out there. Because quite <laughs> frankly, I think a lot of the code I share is, is quite ugly. You That's know? a super interesting conversation. People that fear of sharing code and being like overly analyzed, um, whomever is looking at that open source code. I'm not a good coder. I know that I've done my share of HTML and CSS. I do have a lot of JavaScript and stuff to learn. But the one thing that I've managed to do all the time, because I was afraid of people looking at my code, was always like, at least I left comments there. If it's unperceivable, the comments might help. Please just don't mock me or something because I'm not a pro coder or whatever you want to call it. But it's interesting that that specific point there. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I'm not a great commenter myself. So I'm, I'm doing a, a disservice to everyone putting out uh, well, bad code. And Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> at the end of the day, and this is where the balance between everyone having the tools to build, everyone having the easiness to build and actually putting out there ready for others to build on top. It's not as straightforward as one might mm-hmm. think. Like, as you said, you inspected code when you were a kid. I did the same thing. It's like looking at websites, trying to understand how they build it. Sometimes it's just because that works in the that person's brain and it's very hard to then 
create a language of code that works for everyone, although the code has its own language, but that's the thing at the end of the day. But it's interesting to think about how others then interpret our code because it's even in regular language, as I'm speaking now to you, I might miss misspoke a word or something because I do a lot because I'm not a native English speaker. And that might come completely wrong just because we didn't have that comment there, you know? And code is exactly the same thing. At least for me, I'd always felt like that. Trying to understand the line of code or a couple of them and missing the fact that there's like, I don't know, a sentence that is written with a different letter or something just makes so much difference uh, in the way that you can actually build things. And and it's interesting to see that. Yeah, and I I think I've benefited a lot from taking others' open source code, Mm -hmm. reverse kind of engineering it to again do what i wanted it to do and i benefited so much from others putting their stuff out that i kind of wanted to sort of return that that favor Mm -hmm. and uh um despite me thinking that it's bad code and whatever i'm sure it's going to help hopefully someone when they're stuck on a problem or they want to copy a snippet that creates some visual thing for them like um you know hopefully it does more good than bad (laughs) (laughs) definitely and think about that whole benefiting others and the way that You've been using code to build tools that interest you, but also could serve and support others. Most recently, you've been working on a field or on a specific set of field that I call design automation, which for me is incredible. And it's not just in design that you started seeing that. Even GitHub just launched like a code co-pilot. When did the idea for this type of things came to be? Yeah, you know, it started quite a while back if you recall when sketch was a thing mm-hmm. in the design world and they actually uh had a, a kind of a a plug-in ecosystem going a little bit mm-hmm. um, and back then i was kind of experimenting with code in the design tool you know that's the sort of the intersection that i live at and mm-hmm. i was working on ways that i could write snippets of code to automate different things I was doing in the design tool, whether you know, it was really simple back then, whether it was to organize the file a bit more or move things around a little bit, you know, simple stuff. One of the more interesting things I experimented with was a plugin, again, a long time ago for Sketch, mm-hmm. where the idea was, what if you could like talk to your design tool <laughs> and say, you know, draw a purple rectangle and it would do mm-hmm. that. You know, it all started with that really simple idea because I was really interested in like natural language processing and that whole world. And I think also creating smart design tools, like intelligent design tools was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And so a long time ago, I experimented with that idea and kind of put something out there, but it was very limited in its capabilities. And fast forward to about a year and a half ago or so, mm-hmm. If you recall on Twitter, there were these crazy GPT-3 demos flying around. Yes, from completely, yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, I really need to get my hands on the beta because I thought back to what I did with Sketch and being able to say, like, draw a simple shape. I thought I could dramatically increase the capabilities of what I was able to do in that kind of tool with uh, GPT-3. Mm -hmm. because you could feed it a lot more input and nuance 
and it, it, you could train it on how to understand what you're saying mm -hmm. and expect back some kind of structured response that you could then do something with. Yeah. And so um, as soon as I got my hands on the beta, I started to explore what does the intersection of GPT-3 and Figma or like design and AI look like? Yeah. The first demo that I shared that I hacked together was this idea, this, this Figma plugin where you could describe in words an app and I remember design that. it for you using mm -hmm. your existing design system. And, and so you could say like uh, a photo app that has a list of photos and a heart icon, et cetera, whatever. And it would try to understand what you were saying through GPT-3. And yeah. then it would send that response back to the Figma plugin to run some code to connect the dots to your design system and output something. And that was, you mentioned GitHub Copilot. Yeah. That that demo I shared was met with very similar reception. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. I remember um, that. I remember that. <laughs> the Copilot there was a lot of angry designers and there was a lot of like optimistic, you know, non-designers. Mm -hmm. um, Cause on one hand, people are like, there's no way this is going to replace me as a designer, which was certainly not the intention. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, I think it's, you know, on the theme of design is for everyone. Yeah. I think that the non-designers saw for the first time that they could potentially be able to design something without needing to know, you know, yeah. quote unquote, how to design. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity I'm actually really quite excited about. And as I started to explore what I wanted to work on after I left Square, mm -hmm. I started to just connect the dots back to all the design tools I had built um, over the years and a lot of tools internally at Square to automate different things our team was doing. We published a lot of plugins on behalf of um, Cash App and I always just loved building design tools. I spend a lot of time in Figma and being able to write code to automate different things is, is really fun and exciting for me um, to do. So I looked at some of the things I noticed, the insights I got on a design team at Square. Again, I'm really, I find myself really passionate about building design tools. Mm -hmm. And all of this kind of led up to Tricycle where Tricycle is basically trying to build a bunch of different design tools that yeah. are geared towards design automation, like you mentioned, on, on a, a, a really wide spectrum, everything from things geared towards saving you lots of time to being able to design things for you. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really, really fascinated by th this idea that the intersection of design and AI still remains in my opinion, relatively untapped. Yeah. And there's a yeah. lot of opportunity and potential there. So that's the latest thing I'm kind of focused on. And that's kind of how I found myself working on Tricycle. Yeah. And that's super interesting to look at the way the Tricycle products that you've been showcasing. And you shared some demos really recently on Twitter affect the way that you might look at design tools anyways, because it's not the replacement. I'm one uh, the defends the use of AI for a lot of acceleration stuff. Look, we're recording this podcast and an AI engine is transcribing it at the same time they're recording and I'm going to get the transcript and I'm editing the audio through the transcript that the AI is doing for me, which is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and looking at the way that the design and code tools can evolve so much with that help and the way that we can also open doors to other people to enter that world through that feels really hopeful for me 
and in that perspective that I do defend that design is for everyone. When you were talking in the beginning about how you would inspect code to see how like a website was built, I would very much expect someone to try and describe a website that I like, like Instagram or something, to your plugin and just get the design done and then inspecting layers and see how it's built because it feels like that's a really more natural way for them to look at those things because it would feel more natural to look at layers and to look at labels and text and objects than actually lines of code. And, and I don't know, it, it clicked with me a lot when you show that first demo with the GPT-3 designer, as you call it, right? Because it, it felt like that step that I've been talking about for a while. The tools are going to get there. We've been doing this for a lot of time, not to discourage anyone, because we all know that we're drawing squares on screens. Mm -hmm. But the fact yeah. is, machines can help us speed up this type of things. And if we like the way tools evolve, then you talk about how Sketch was more of an industry standard. Figma is now becoming a little bit more, although I think it's still a little bit mixed. It is that step. It is that like how tools evolve and how they affect the way that we interact with design at the end of the day, right? Definitely. And I think I'm really, I'm, I'm personally really interested in this idea. One trend I noticed, you know, working mm -hmm. on a design team, something like Figma, I think for the first time is seeing a lot more than just designers spending time in the design tool. Yeah. You know, you've got PMs, engineers, data scientists, you name it. Mm -hmm. They also want to be able to visualize their ideas and those, you know, those visualizations, a lot of times end up looking like gray rectangles and text boxes. <laughs> and it turns out a lot of design teams have built these really robust design systems. And those are the puzzle pieces that are in place that you can pull from to piece together a screen. And when you're met with, when you don't know the nuances of, of a tool like Figma, and you're met with a blank canvas, it can be really hard to know even just where to start. And yeah. I think this idea around, hopefully everyone kind of knows what they want to be able to describe and, and can describe it in words and can Tricycle build something that can connect those dots and output, you know, something that it's, it's not gonna be perfect, but maybe it mm -hmm. gets, gets you 75% of the way there, let's say, and then you can take that thing and, and adjust things and go from there. I think there's, there's something to be said about saving that time from having to know how to even, you know, place a component on the canvas or definitely or what to even place on the canvas. So, yeah. Um, and, and, and even people that are pro designers, and I've noticed this in teams that I've, I've worked with on different projects and what's not, not everyone works the same way. Not everyone learned the same way. And for example, you have best practices for specific software. Figma, Figma created auto layout and auto layout is like a beast by itself. Not everyone understands auto layout. So if they can see how something is like pre-built using those rules and then inspect it and, and learn from it, it's probably better for them than try and learn and build it and break everything along the path. Because as you said, you never know where to start when you get such a big white canvas. Being a designer, pro or not, because it's it's like, yep. it's a white canvas is, has always been, even before we entered the digital space, a completely open space for creativity or whatever you want to put there. And 
it's interesting when we talk about these tools that the the word the sentence start on a white canvas is still the thing because like painters did it centuries ago and we still do it now but now we're more focused on creating products than actually creating art but yeah it's it's interesting yeah i think just in general making design more accessible for everyone and bringing out the inner creativity in everyone mm -hmm. and really letting us as humans focus on the piece the parts of design that only we can really do and tr attempting to sort of automate some of the rest of the tedious time consuming mundane tasks that's the high level of you know some of the things i hope to work on with tricycle I'm completely on board with that goal. I see so much potential in Tricycle and the things that you're building and really even sharing it with that extended world of what are people using design and what actually are designers because the definition of design has been shifted so many years and our job roles, if we had started working 50 years ago, we'd probably be industrial designers. Nowadays, we're, we're called brand and the visual and UI and UX and product and what's not. So uh, there's there are so many levels there that make me believe that these tools are are the gateways to to better and not just better, but new different types of designers and new different types of creatives and people entering the industry and and bringing those things in. I can only commend you for the work that you've been doing with this because. We're all expecting it to come out. We're all just <laughs> eager to play around with it and, and, and yeah, what's not, but it's, it, it is interesting. Um, yeah, I was going to try and finish a little bit with a question, which is, do you believe design is for everyone? But I guess you kind of just answered it, but do you have a more broad answer there or do you really believe it's for everyone? What do you feel? Yeah, I think... Everyone is uh, can be described as a designer. I think we're all creators. We just happen to create different things, whether it's in the digital world or the physical world. Mm -hmm. um, everyone has ideas and things that they want to be able to come up with. And you know, as it relates to in the in the digital world, like like we just touched on, I'm super interested in making it possible so that everyone can again bring out that inner designer inside of them mm -hmm. and they don't need to know all the nuances of how to get there they just need you know a simple interface to be able to describe for example what they want i think yeah at, at a really high level i think we are all in one form or another we can be described as designers in general and <laughs> and making that more accessible and for everyone i'm fully on board with that idea that's a great thing and just one last thing on that, you talk about the way that interfaces and, and people shouldn't be limited through those things. You talk about natural language being part of what these tools and AI uses. Do you believe that language can be a key player in the way that we actually evolve this type of things? I, I happen to think so. I mean... It's interesting when you think about if you and I were just chatting, we didn't have a, a computer or a screen in front of us, and I'm describing something in words, mm -hmm. and in your mind, you're able to kind of visualize what I'm thinking. I think the translation layer going from words to design 
is pretty natural. Mm-hmm. I know when I'm designing, I'm thinking in my mind, like, you know, I want this thing to, to look X, Y, and Z style or, you know, and it's interesting because we're translating these thoughts and words in our, our minds and uh, our output is turning into inputs on the keyboard and mouse <laughs> and the clicks on the canvas. Could we actually sort of eliminate that layer, that intermediate interaction we have to click and tap a few keys? Mm-hmm. Could you just go straight from thoughts to or words to design? I think anytime you can even imagine eliminating like a layer of input that's kind of necessary, like right now. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I think words have a, a really interesting role to play in, in terms of design. Cool. Look, Jordan, thank you for, for having me. Thank you for talking about your process, your products, the things that you've been built. I'm really, I don't know how to say it better, but I think the community just lucky to have you out there building things for everyone because the thing that we need is more people like you creating solutions that are more geared to people that want to build, that want to create, that want to evolve what we can do with design, what we can do with code, with technology overall. Thank you for telling us how you got there, how you played around with things, how you've learned, and now you went from inspecting Apple.com to building tools that turn speech into design if you want to. Yeah, Bruno, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your your podcast and and thank you for letting me share my my story. Yeah. And thank you everyone else for listening. Meet you all again next week for another episode. Bye.